We're nearing the end of our journey through the book of Revelation. Um, we started quite some time ago. And uh, as many of you know, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, our focus through the book of Revelation is not that we would completely fix everybody's eschatology, because Lord knows he probably needs to fix mine in some areas. Um, not that we would uh, answer every question you have, but really that we would see the overcoming of the Lamb, that we would see Jesus in this book, and that we would see the overcoming of those that are in Christ, that we would see ourselves in this, that we'd see the overcoming of the church. That, that idea of overcoming is throughout the book. From the moment that we see Jesus, and he, he speaks of how he's overcome death, hell, and the grave. To those letters he writes to the seven churches at the end of each letter, saying to the one that overcomes, here's what I'll give you. Here's what I'll do. And throughout, we see how he overcomes time and again. He overcomes the dragon. He overcomes the beast. He overcomes Babylon. He overcomes death itself. And we see these enemies cast down. We see death, the final enemy, defeated. Then we find ourselves towards the last couple chapters. Judgment is done. The bad guys are in the lake of fire. And what's left? We have to know that this story is not merely about Jesus triumphing over the bad guys. Because the bad guys aren't the point of existence, right? We, we've, we've said this before, but the devil is not the anti-God. He's, he's not a bad God. He's not a God. He's a created being. We know that God um, had a plan to redeem the earth from the consequences of sin, from the law of sin and death, from the corruption that we brought on it. And yet, that's not the, the whole point of existence. The whole point of existence is not to defeat the bad, right? Because what was there before there was sin? There was God. There was his people. They had something to do. We see throughout the book of Revelation that there's, there's work left for us. We're ruling and reigning with him. There's, there's something after all this. It's not just clouds. It's not just, you know, harps. It's not just cabins in the corner of glory. There's, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And who knows what else, right? We know that God's word hasn't stopped creating. Science tells us that the universe and, and they only can grasp a little bit of it because we're so limited in our own knowledge. But they know that the universe is constantly expanding. It's never stopped expanding since God spoke it into existence. And who knows what he plans with all of that? It's not our job tonight to decide that. Because <laughs> I think whatever we would come up with would fall so short of whatever he's doing. But we know that in this next life, when we lay these bodies down and we get a glorified body, a spiritual body as Paul calls it, we know that there's not just, um, it's not just one large worship service, although worship is a big part of life. It should be a big part of life now. And I don't mean just worship through music or song. I mean worship, everything is worship. There seems to be a lot of focus on the lamb and, and him who sits on a throne and, and, and all of these things. And yet, I do believe that there's more than that. Um, I don't know how that all works out, but I'm excited about it. So the last two chapters, the focus is no longer on the battles. Battles are done. Judgment is done. So what's left? There's this beautiful sentence. Oh, let's just read it for ourselves. Instead of me trying to describe it, I want you to see it. 
So we come to chapter 21. We've left judgment behind. We've left death behind. We've left all of these things that have opposed God's people and God himself are in the lake of fire. The first words that he says are, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. I couldn't tell you why there needs to be a new heaven. Gee, I thought heaven was pretty much unblemished. Who knows why it has to be a new one. These are some things that I suppose we'll all understand together. But he says, I saw it. It was everything was new. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That phrase itself just captures me because the, the idea of a bride is throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's, it's in the Old Testament as well, but it, it gains definition in the New Testament as we discover that the church is the bride of Christ, right? That we're being prepared for this moment, that there's something. That many times we see a hint of a, of a day of presentation where the bride is presented. We all kind of know the, uh, you know, in Ephesians where he talks about, uh, he's talking about marriage between men and women here on earth. And he compares it. He says it's a picture of Christ in the church. And one of the things he says about the husband is that he, he, he sanctifies his wife. With a, he, he washes her by the washing of the water by the word. He's talking about Christ in the church. That Christ is sanctifying us. That Christ is washing us. And of course we all know the scripture where it says he's going to present us a church without spot or blemish. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of people use that verse in a lot of different ways. One of the ways we often use that verse is we need to get our act together because, you know, Jesus is coming back for a church without spot or blemish, right? Have you heard someone say that? I mean, nothing, wrong, nothing wrong with that. There's truth to that. However, think about the phrase without spot or blemish. That, that doesn't mean we've pretty much got our act together. Without spot or blemish means you can find no imperfection. So if the, if the way we use that verse is we should probably try harder to be better people because Jesus is coming back for a perfect church, when are we going to reach that point? When are we going to reach the point where he can find nothing? No, I mean, when are we going to reach the point where we just try hard enough to get along <laughs> and clean our act up that he's going to say, yeah, you guys, you made it, you did it. No spot or blemish. I can't find anything wrong with you. He's not coming back. He's not saying, I'm going to present a bride that's a lot cleaner than they were 10 years ago. Without spot or blemish means there's absolutely nothing wrong. If you haven't clued in yet, you can't do that. The only thing that can sanctify us to that level or to any level of sanctification is Christ himself. It's his blood. It's his righteousness imputed to us. This is what we need. So while there's truth in the fact that when you're made righteous, now we live righteous. And we're called to that righteousness, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The reality is, we can't say, hey guys, let's get our act together. Stop messing around. He's coming back for a church without spot or blemish. Like God's just waiting, watching, just hoping that we'll finally start being perfect. It's got to be all him or not him at all. Right? 
His righteousness is not a supplement to our righteousness. It's not our, it's not our vitamin B shot. It's not our, our, you know, I'll fill up what you lack. It's, it's, it's got to be all of our righteousness is in him or we're not righteous at all. Now, this righteousness that we've received, it leads us, this sanctification that we've experienced, that we've been made holy, we've been created, as the Bible says, we've been recreated in the likeness of him in all holiness and truth. That's the reality of my spirit. But we know that my mind still needs to be renewed. We know that my flesh has still got issues. We know that I'm not a perfect being. Though my spirit is made perfect, there's work being done on me. So Paul says to the Philippians, he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ. So we've been reading about that day. That day is a big day. He's going to keep working on us till that day. So we've got two realities. We've got our righteous standing in Christ. We've got his righteousness in us. And then there's also the fact that that righteousness inside of us, that salvation, as Paul calls it, that, that salvation that's working its way out in us, that we're working out in us, it's changing us in every way. It's changing our mind. It's changing our bodies. It, it's changing the way we live. So when he talks about this idea of a bride, I know he's talking about the city, and he'll describe the physical city. He'll describe the pillars and, and, and all the pretty stones and all of that, but really, there's two ideas of this city. When we talk about the city of God, sure, there's the structures, but the structures aren't a city without the people. Really, what God is wanting is his city, and his city consists of the people of God. I love the verse that says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. You know, he's not talking about the buildings are happy. This is not Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like, it's not like the, the walls are smiling all of a sudden. Like, we're the city of God. We're his city. I've often thought about this because, um, <laughs> you know, some of us would just, our idea of heaven is that cabin in the corner of glory. We can go fishing, and every now and then we'll see someone and wave at him. But the reality of the pictures we see in the scripture are when Jesus is describing those that have entered his kingdom, entered his glory, when he's describing us stepping into uh, the reward, it's a lot of people. There's a lot of people around. In fact, when he talks about those that are cast out into the outer darkness, that's where it's lonely. When he describes heaven, it's a crowded place. There's lots of people. It's a party. When he describes hell, it's lonely. It's isolated. So if you've got issues with people now, and we all do, these are going to get worked out. You're not going to need your alone time. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that for us introverts that recharge our batteries when we're alone, somehow that's all going to work out. And our batteries are going to be just recharged by him. He, he says this. Oh, I love this verse. I'm going to say that a lot tonight. <laughs> I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, or look, pay attention. The tabernacle of God is among men, or humans, people. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's some of the most beautiful words we could ever hear. He says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no, be lo no longer any death, 
There will no longer be any mourning, no crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. The tabernacle of God is among us. This is something God's been talking about since we fell. This is something that he's been talking about throughout the prophets and the Psalms. All through the Old Testament, he's been making promises that there'll be a day when I live among you. And he says, in that day, you won't have to say to someone else, know the Lord, for everyone will know me. He's been making this promise that you'll be my people. I'll be your God and I'll live among you. And it's the, one of the best promises we've ever heard. It's better than anything you could ever get from God is just having him and having him in the midst of you. And this is what the whole Bible's been working up to, that reconciliation between God and humanity. It's why Jesus died. It's why we've been given the message of reconciliation, right? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That this is reconciliation. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And he who became sin, he who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Why must we be righteous? So that God can dwell amongst us. This is the point of everything. It's the center of all creation. It's the center of our existence is to know him. It's the center of our existence is to live with him, to abide in him. When Jesus in John chapter 14 is is preparing his disciples for his departure, he tells them, if you keep my command, you keep my words, my father and I will make our abode, our dwelling place, our home with you. He just finished telling them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans anymore. You know, remember when we started through this book of Revelation and we were like reading those first seven letters and Jesus would say things like, to the one that overcomes, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. Or to the one who overcomes, I'll make you a pillar in the house of my God. And remember how we were talking about some of those things we just kind of glaze over because we really don't know what they mean. They kind of of sound like they must be good, but huh. And how I used to read those, and I don't know if you're anything like me, but I used to read those and go, oh, that's good. I just kind of blo- just kind of lumped them all into, if I overcome, it's good on some level. I don't know what the hidden manna is. I don't know why it's important that I get a name that no one knows about. I don't know what it means to be a pillar in the house of God. I just kind of glazed over that stuff. Till I started to realize that if it's, if it's that important to Jesus, and it seems really important to Jesus, maybe it should be important to me. Like if Jesus is saying, here, at the end of the race, you have done it all. You, you, I, I've, I've carried you across the finish line. At the end of the race, you've overcome. Here's the great treasure I'm going to give you. And you look inside and go, that? Well, I was hoping for something I could spend at Costco, but all right. Remember when Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine? Because they'll, they'll, they'll take a crunch on that pearl and they go, this, isn't, this, this, this tastes horrible. And they'll charge at you, they'll become angry. They don't know that the pearl could buy them food for years, right? They're just mad because it doesn't immediately satisfy their craving. We as Christians are like this all the time. We're looking for the quick, give me something that just lifts me up right now. Tell me something that makes me feel good at the moment. Tell me something that, that, that meets my immediate need, whether it's spiritual, emotional, physical. Just give me something that meets my need right now. And you know what? 
Jesus meets people at their needs. I, I believe that. You know, when he, when he met with the masses, he met their needs. But there's so much more than that. And so I never want to see something that Jesus obviously treasures and says, this is the greatest thing I could give you. And I go, I don't get it. So, cool. But I don't really understand that. I, I, I want to treasure it like he treasures it. And I think when we're reading throughout this scripture, there are certain things that are said over and over again as the great reward, the greatest thing God could give us. And maybe we don't value it as much as God values it. I've said this before, but, you know, we, we tell believers to count the cost because Jesus told us to count the cost. Count the cost of following Jesus. There's a cost. But how can you really count the cost until you really know the value of something? It's knowing the value that makes the cost so worth it. And really, the cost, any cost we have is nothing compared to the value of what he's giving us. Isn't that true? Yeah. Right? I mean, do you think this is a straight-up deal? Lord, I'll give you my life and you give me yours. Fair trade. It's not a fair trade. <laughs> Nothing about this is fair. We're getting, we're, we're, we're getting everything for barely anything. Right? So we should treasure the treasure. And when Jesus says over and over again, and God himself, the Father, the one who sits on the throne over and over again says, here's what I'm going to do. All of this has been for this, that I would dwell among you and be your God and you'd be my people and you'll be sons and daughters to me. That, that is the greatest prize. That's everything. There's nothing God can give us that's greater than that. That's it. So we, I, I, I want us to be able to read this and rejoice in it like he rejoices in it. I want us to be able to read this and realize this is everything. This is the point of life, that we'd be reconciled to him. That the garden was a small taste of what God wanted to do. The garden was a preview of something. But it was just a, a form, a shadow of the greater things to come. He says the first things are done. Death is done, mourning is done, crying is done, pain is done. Those were the first things, and they're gone. And he who sits on the throne says, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God. He will be my son. Such a huge promise. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now hang on. As we read that, we go, oh, well, who, who are those people? We would all be those people if not for the blood of Jesus. Which one of you was not a liar? Right? A liar is one who lies. I've lied. Like in the past week, I've lied. Not to you. <laughs> I didn't mean to. Doesn't matter. I needed his grace. I needed his blood to cover me. And you know, as we see through this book of Revelation, we'll, we'll read it later, but he talks about those that have dipped their robes in the blood of the lamb and they've become, their robes have become white. 
These ones that are standing on the outside are not those that were too bad for Jesus to redeem. They were the ones that rejected his redeeming. They disbelieved. You know, Hebrews tells us what's the great sin that will keep you out. It talks about the Israelites. What kept them out of the promised land? He talks about sin kept them out. But what sin? He goes on and tells us. Because you might say, well, obviously it was the idolatry, or obviously it was the grumbling, or obviously it was this or that. Well, he tells us. He said, so you see, they were kept out of the promised land because of their unbelief. The only sin that can really keep you from God is unbelief. Every other sin we bring, and through belief, through faith, we receive grace. We, we, we bring that. The Lord cleanses us. There's, there's no one that's beyond that. But if you, if you can't believe, then you hang on to your own sin. You've hung on to your own judgment. You've brought judgment upon yourself because you won't freely receive what God has freely given. Grace through faith. So he says it's the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable. And I don't know about you, when I read that, I think of a snowman. I don't I, <laughs> But really the cursed, right? The murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, listen to this, come here, I will show you the bride. Isn't that awesome? Come here, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Why in the world is Jesus proud of us? Do you ever think about that? We're the bride. Now, when I was a teenage boy, I didn't like that terminology. <laughs> then again, I, many times when the Lord is talking about his sons and daughters, he just says, sons, so women, this is what you've been dealing with for a while now. I didn't like being called the bride. I wanted other terminology. Because, you know, when you're in youth group, when, when, the, guys, when the guys are just turned on to Jesus, they get excited and they use a lot of battle metaphors, you know, like, we're fighting for the Lord, we're fighting for our king, you know. <laughs> you know what, the, the girls in the youth group were always like, I don't need a boyfriend because Jesus is my boyfriend. And we're always just like, they're reading out of the song of songs, your, your kisses are like, you know, and we're just all kind of like, the guys are like, okay, settle down, <laughs> settle down, this is weird. Kiss me with your kisses, Lord. We're like, stop that. That's just odd. I don't like this. So whenever we talked about us being the bride of Christ, I would only feel better if we made that as broad as possible. Like, we are the bride of Christ. I never wanted to think of it very individually. And, and truth, are, truth is, we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. But this is not sensual in nature. It's not the way we think of it. But it is the idea of being unified to him. It's the idea of him being that husband, that carer, that, that one that keeps us and, and, and washes us. It's that idea that we are joined together with him through Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And, 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 and so over and over again, I've mentioned this, that, that throughout the scripture, he presents, we're being presented and the reason he presents us, he's the one that has redeemed us. He's the one that's washed us. He's the one that's cleaned us. And so when he presents us, we are not something he's ashamed of. That's an amazing thought. 
We are not someone he's going to have to say, sorry about this. I settled. I did the best I could, but you know, at a certain point, you just, you just settle for what you got. No, he, at this point, it'll be glorious. Come, let me show you the bride. Come, let me show you the bride of the Lamb. Ah, what, what must John be thinking? Does he see himself in that bride? Does he grasp what that is? And this is what it says in verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Listen to that. Having the glory of God. That's what makes it his city. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square its length is as great as its width. He measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. That's amazing. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And he names all these stones. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Here's, you could, you could get all nerdy about this and measure it out, but I, I don't think that our rules always apply. Right? You say, how in the world can billions of people fit in that city? And, you know, God's going to work this out. Don't you worry. This will work. But I like this in verse 22. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the lamb. Can you imagine that? There's no need for any lights. There's no need for stars. There's no need for sun. There's no need for the moon. The lamb himself, Jesus himself, lights the city up. Can you imagine just walking around in pure light? There's never any shadows because... Light's not coming from one direction. It's just everywhere. But it's not so much that it's hurting you. Oh, my goodness. This is amazing. This is what happens when God gets his way. We, saw, we talked about this before. Our idea of heaven is the pleasure factory. Whatever we like, there's going to be lots of that in heaven. But in reality, that's not the picture that's painted. Heaven's not being fit for us. We're being fit for heaven. And the reason that everything works in his kingdom is because he gets his way. When his will is done, things work. So if we want to enjoy it, that we want a little taste of heaven on earth, let his will be done here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you don't want God's will done here now, why, what in the world is going to be so great about it when you get there? Well, hopefully you'll have your head screwed on straight. You'll know as you're known. <laughs> but I mean, come on, guys. 
we're going to see in a moment that a lot of these things that are painted, this picture, you know, it's not just for the sweet by and by. Thank God there's a fulfillment of it then. But there are tastes of this. There are images of this in our reality right now. We'll go to that in a minute, but I just want to read the rest of this. The nations will walk by its light. Somehow they're still nations. Somehow Jesus is, we've seen this throughout the book of Revelation. He's not trying to wash out the fact that people are diverse. He, he boasts in the fact that there's many tribes and tongues. He is not trying to make us all one amalgamate, one homogenized group of people. The nations, there's still nations in this. I don't know how that works, but I'm pretty excited by it. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They'll be kings. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Once again, throughout the book of Revelation, past, present, and future all just kind of work together. And I don't know how much of this is past, present, and future all at once. But he says this, and he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 different kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and he will reign, sorry, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show us to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. I want to stop for a minute, and I want to show you something in the book of Ezekiel. If you'll turn there, and then we'll turn to 2 Corinthians and spend most of the rest of our time there. But Ezekiel 37 is a similar picture. A picture of um, God redeeming his people, redeeming Israel. And uh, this picture is, is known as the, the picture of the Davidic kingdom. And I believe that when God talks about the kingdom of David, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Of course, he was the son of David, right? He's the Messiah in the, in the throne in the line of David. And he speaks of a time, and I believe that much of this is fulfilled in our time. A time where his people will have one shepherd. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 10? He said, there are many of my flock, I'll bring them in. There are many, many sheep to come into the flock, but they'll all have one shepherd. And he says this, he says, in verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Well, this lines up perfectly with Isaiah 54, which is the aftermath of Isaiah 53, which is the picture of the cross. In Isaiah 54, he says, this is now a picture of righteousness. This is a picture of my people walking in righteousness. Here's what I'll do for them. Here's what I'll restore. And one of those things in Isaiah 54 that is so brilliantly brought out is there will be a covenant of peace with them. There will be my covenant, my loving kindness will not be removed from them. The mountains may fall, the earth may shake, but my covenant will not be removed. 
Now that's the reality that you and I live in right now. That's not the sweet by and by. That's now. We have a covenant with God. We stepped into a covenant with him, a covenant of peace. Now, the covenant of peace goes so far beyond tranquility, goes so far beyond the warm fuzzies. A covenant of peace means things have been made right between us and God, means things have been made whole within ourselves, wholeness in Christ. Then he says this, he says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and I will multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. There are pieces of this now and there are pieces of this yet to come. But once again, he's setting his sanctuary amongst his people. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now this just keeps coming up. I will dwell with them. I'll live amongst them, and I'll be their God. They'll be my people. I'll be their father. They'll be my kids. And he says, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, this goes back to that thought about being the bride of Christ and him sanctifying us. Because, see, God could not dwell amongst the sinful people. Right? How could he? So he's saying, now this is how I'm able to dwell among you because I've cleaned you, I've made you holy. I, I'm, I'm going to wash you, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to present you holy and blameless in the sight of God. As Jude says, on that day where he who is able to keep us from stumbling will present us holy and blameless without blemish with great joy on that day. You know, he just, he doesn't say, I'll present them and finally the scale of good will outweigh the scale of bad and they'll squeak in by the skin of their teeth. No, he says on that day you're going to be rejoicing because you'll be presented blameless. Blameless doesn't mean pretty good. Blameless doesn't mean, well, it's enough to get in. Blameless is without blame. Nothing left. This is the righteousness that he offers us. And he says, here's how the nations will know that I've sanctified you because they'll see that I dwell with you. And I want you to, we're going to finish most of this in 2 Corinthians 6. I won't take too long on this, but it's important that we see the reality right now. Because there is a future reality, Right? Just like our adoption, the scripture says we've now received the spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father. But the Bible tells us that there's a fulfillment of our adoption to come when we get our new bodies. That's, that's, the, that's the fullness of it. So there's what we have now and there's what we don't have yet, but we, we hope, we, we have faith, we look forward to it with expectation. But here's the right now part, and I, and I, I think this is important that we see it. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, he says, Don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? It's another word for Satan himself. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them. And I will walk among them. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. 
Therefore, now listen, therefore, this is the connecting thought. What's your response to that promise? Thank God, thank God that so many of the promises of God in this word are, uh, so many of the commandments of God, I should say, so many of God's commandments are attached directly to a promise. Isn't that amazing? Couldn't he just tell us to do stuff and say, just do it because I said so? Wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't that be enough? You guys are like, no, I need, show me the money. <laughs> yeah, it would be enough. He's God. He could just say, this is the way it's going to be, boys, girls. This is how it's going to be. Don't, don't, don't talk back. But he doesn't so many times. He puts a commandment and a promise together. He's, and here he actually puts the promise first and says, here's your response to that promise. Here's how you respond to that promise. Therefore, come out from their midst. Be separate. Be holy. Don't touch what's unclean. I'll welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, I wish we had the time to just go through every place in Scripture and just spend half an hour on each place in Scripture where he says, I'll be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. What an amazing promise. Chapter 7, I have no idea why there's a chapter break here. It makes no sense to me. Because he says, therefore, right? Seems a poor place to put a chapter break. It's directly connected to what we just read. Therefore, having these promises. What promises? I'll live amongst you. I'll make my tent in the midst of you. I'll, I'll not just live amongst you. He says, I'll live in you. I'll live in you and I'll dwell among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Peter says, once we were not a people, now we're a people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. He's promising us, I'll be your God. You'll be my tribe. You'll be my people. You'll be mine. I'm not ashamed to call you mine. And in my view, look around. Guys, look around at the church today. Thank God for what God's doing amongst the church. But if I were God, I'd have reason to be a little bit embarrassed. Don't you think we, we kind of do things to embarrass him all the time? Yet he's not embarrassed of his people. He must see something different than what we see. He must see what is not yet as already done. He must call things that aren't as though they were. He must see and believe his righteousness more than we believe it. He must put more faith in his own blood than we put in his blood. He must see us as we are in Christ rather than as we are in the flesh, though he's not aware of our weaknesses, though he's not aware of our shortcomings, though he is a faithful high priest who's been tempted in all things yet without sin, yet he still sees us and can say, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. I'm not ashamed to call you my children. I'm not ashamed to call you my people. I'm not ashamed on that day to put you beside me and say, this is my bride. Without spot, without blemish, he's washed us. On that day, we will be perfect. But he's washing us even right now with the water of his word. Your mind is being washed. Your body is being washed. Jesus died for every part of us, didn't he? Not just our spirits, not just our souls. He died for this sack of meat and water. He died to redeem me. 
He owns me. So I will glorify God with my body because I've been bought with a price. In light of the mercies of God, I'll present myself as a living sacrifice. And in light of the promise that I'll dwell among you, I'm going to come out. Just as Hebrews says, I'm going to come out of my camp because I'm so desperate for people to like me. I'm so hungry for people to accept me into the culture. I want to fit in with my culture even though I know at the core I'm not part of this culture. But I want to fit in. I want to follow Jesus, but I also want people in this city to say, Reverend? I actually don't want anybody to call me Reverend, but you know what I mean. I want them to think I'm doing a good thing. Do you know? You want people to like you. You want your coworkers to think you're a good person. But the day will come and may come in our lifetime where people will persecute us and think they're doing a service to God. Where people will hate you because they hated Jesus. And you have to make a choice. Who do I care? I mean, which, which opinion do I care about, his or theirs? And the difference is the difference between the fear of God and the fear of people. The fear of people is a snare, but the fear of God leads to life. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus went outside of the camp for us. He's speaking of that scapegoat. He's speaking of that sacrifice that would be outside of the camp. He said, he went outside the camp for us, and he literally was crucified outside the city with the criminals, too, too despicable to be executed in a, in, in, in a clean way, too despicable to be executed inside the city walls. He had to be brought outside to Golgotha. He had to be crucified with people that, that, that were worthy of the worst kind of death, and he bore our reproach in that way. People mocked him and said, according to Isaiah 53, they looked at him and said, you must have done something to make God mad. If God was pleased with you, you could have come down from that cross and redeemed yourself, couldn't you? If you're the son of God, come down. And in that moment, he doesn't come down. He stays. He stays and he bears our reproach. So the writer of Hebrews says, because he took our reproach outside the camp for us, let us go outside the camp and meet him there, bearing his reproach. And when I think of how our culture, we don't live in a country where we're lined up against the wall and shot for our beliefs. We don't live in a country where you could be jailed yet. I mean, maybe in an extreme case, somebody might get sued or Somebody might get hit with a hate crime thing. But, but in reality, there's not a real threat of physical persecution in our country at this point. So what does our country do? What does our culture do if they want to persecute you? They push you to the edge. They push you to the fringes of society. They say, you're an outlier. You're whatever names they want to use. But they push you outside of their camp. You don't fit here. And sometimes the shame of not belonging to our culture, not fitting in, not being able to identify with them. Sometimes that shame is as much a burden on us as physical harm that somebody could offer. I'm not trying to compare us to the believers in the Middle East who are really facing death or in places of Asia or Africa that are dying for their faith in Christ. I know we got it pretty easy, but yet we're afraid that people will put us on the outside. We're afraid of not really being accepted. On some level, that still affects us. But the writer says, hey, you know who's going to meet you if you go outside your camp, if you go outside your culture? You know who's there? Jesus. You get to meet him. You get to, be, you get to live with him. 
Outside of our camp is him waiting for us. I remember I read from that scripture to the people in Loon Lake one time. It was a time when most of the people in our church were from the reserve. We had a few that were from the town. Most were from the reserve. And many of them, especially the older ones, many of the older ones had at some point been kicked out of their families for believing in Jesus. We had a lady, a Filipino girl. When the, Filip when the Filipino population was very low in Lloyd, and they just, we just started to get immigrants from the Philippines. It was like every Filipino immigrant was, was basically just uh, uh, nannies. That was the only kind of immigrant that they were allowing for a while there. One lady named Beth, I don't know if you guys remember Beth, Beth Aquino. Beth's father poured hot water on her head because she chose to follow Jesus. Boiling water on her head. She carried that. Thank God he came to the Lord. I'm thinking of some of the friends of brothers and sisters that are with us now in Loon Lake. Their families came to the Lord after a while. Not all of them, but a lot of them. The bold choice to walk outside and say, I'd rather live in his city than anywhere other city changes the way you live now. Abraham chose rather to live in tents than live in the cities of people because he was looking for a city whose builder is God. Joseph said, take my bones with you. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Take my bones to the promised land. Moses could have lived in a palace, chose to live with the people of Israel, because he'd rather be with the people of God than bear the pleasures of sin. And the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, all these people prove that they're looking for something else. That they weren't content with this city. They're looking for another city. All of them prove that they don't, they're not looking for something here. At the end of the chapter, it talks about some who are killed for their faith, some who are tortured, some who are beaten. But it says all of these people are men and women that the world is not even worthy of. That's an amazing thought. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, beloved, isn't that wonderful? He loves you. He calls you beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What is the fear of God? We could spend hours and talk about it, but one of the ways that I think about it is the fear of God is, is such an honor and reverence for him that his opinion is the only opinion you care about. You're more aware of him than you're aware of anyone else. Everybody else could disapprove, but as long as he approves, you're good. That's just a small piece of the fear of God. But he says, because I've got these promises, I now have the power to say, I'm letting go of that. I'm letting go of this. I'm tossing this aside. All this defilement of flesh and spirit, Jesus is working on me. I've already been made righteous. Now I'm learning to walk righteously. I've been sanctified in my inner man, and yet my, I'm experiencing sanctification as I walk through life. I am perfecting holiness. I am called a saint. I am called holy in his sight. Yet I am perfecting holiness as I live in the fear of God. It's all because of this promise. So we can read these 
verses in the book of Revelation and write songs about how someday, someday in the sweet by and by, he'll live amongst us, he'll dwell amongst us. Someday we'll be the city of God and he'll set up his tent amongst us. But I want you to know that we have that reality even now. There'll be a fullness of it there that we haven't yet experienced, but we have him now. We have him now. We're his people now. We're sons and daughters now. How do you respond to that reality? He says, come on, come live with me. Come abide in me. Quit trying to live in two different worlds. Quit trying to make two different realities. Just, just embrace the fact that you're my kids, that I dwell among you. Let go of those other things. Be part of me. Be like me. And I want to close with this verse back where we started in the book of Revelation. It's towards the end of the whole book. Revelations 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears, that's you, say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. This is who's invited to the city, those that will come. He says the spirit and the bride say come. Who's the bride? Who's the bride? We're the bride. One of our purposes here on earth is to join with the spirit and say come. To invite the hungry, the thirsty, and say, come. Come to the city of God. Come to the kingdom. Come and drink water. Come and be fed. Not, and though, yeah, we'll feed the poor, we'll feed and we'll clothe the, the homeless and the naked, yes. But the water here that we're talking about is so much greater. It's that Isaiah 55, Water. And food. It's, it's not what's physically satisfying. It's, it's that thing we've been dying for, we've been searching for all our lives. See, everybody has that thirst. Not everybody recognizes that thirst. The world fills it with all these things, and that's why we've talked over and over again about all these people that have finally a, a, attained all the things that the world seeks. They got all the money. They got all the fame. They got all the, the credibility. They've, they've got everything they were looking for, and they're more miserable. And we see them every year. They kill themselves. They, they overdose. They, you know, and, and, and it's not just the rich. It's the poor alike. Which People are trying to fill these spaces. He says part of our job is to join with the Spirit. The Spirit is drawing people to Jesus, right? We're the bride. We join with the Spirit and we say, come. 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 You know, it's interesting. He talks about all the people on the outside the sinners, the dirty people, the messed up people. He doesn't say the spirit and the bride say, stay out. And say the spirit and the bride say, you got what you deserved. He says the spirit and the bride say, hey, come. We're inviting people to experience this beautiful truth. We should, at the, at the core of who we are, we not only have experienced reconciliation, we've been given the word and the ministry of reconciliation. We've got to stop saying 
Well, that's God's job, and mine's just try to live right. He said he's given it to you, the ministry of reconciliation. You've been handed the ministry. His ministry has been entrusted to his people. Now, he does the work, amen? The Spirit does the drawing. Christ Jesus himself does the sanctifying. And yet, we're the ones that get to do the inviting. And we join with the Spirit. Jesus was lifted up on that cross. He said, the moment I'm lifted up on that cross, I'll draw all men unto myself. That's the reality we live in. I'd love for us to treasure as much as he seems to treasure the, 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 the value of saying he lives amongst us. We're his people. What, uh, what other name are we looking for? What other name, what other title could we want other than we're the sons and daughters of him? We're his people. He's our God. And what other identity are you searching for that matters? Who cares? Who cares uh, what degrees you have? Who cares what titles you have? Who At the end of the day, we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And what does the rest of this matter? That's the most beautiful thing we could ever be called. I remember a, an older minister who had, I mean, he had all the degrees. He had his doctorates, multiple doctorates. He was a well-respected theologian. He was, he was a man in charge of many other people. He'd been entrusted with a lot of authority. And do you know what he said? And it really stuck with me. He said, someone said, well, what, how do I introduce you? Like, what do I call you, right? Like, which one? You got a lot of things I could call you. What do I call you? He said, oh, the highest title you can call me is brother. That's the highest thing you could call me. The best thing you could call me is brother. Why? Because the fact that we're brothers reminds us that my greatest identity is as, as a son. The kingdom of God is a family business. And we've been invited into it. And there's nothing that the world could ever take from us when that's, the, 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 when that's who we are. Who cares what they call you? Who cares what they think of what you do? Who cares if the Lord tells you to give up your prestigious position and do something that seems not prestigious at all? If you do have the prestigious position, who, I mean, thank God, God will use you in it, but that's not what makes you valuable. We have the value of being sons and daughters and his people. We're his tribe. That's the greatest thing we could be called. At the end of the day, we're the bride. So I want to leave you with that, that admonishment and that promise to come out, be different, embrace who you are in Christ. Don't be ashamed of being rejected. You've never been rejected by God. If the God of all creation calls you friend, what could anyone say to diminish who you are? Really, what, what insult is left? Nothing else matters. I just pray that we as a church, and when I say as a church, I don't mean the word church. I mean, first and foremost, the church in Lloydminster here, but then all over the world. My prayer is that the message that they're hearing from us is not which political party we hate. It's not all the silly things we get boggled down in. And there's a time and a place to stand for certain things. I get it. But I pray that the message that they hear is come. I pray that the message they'd hear is us glorifying God with one voice, as Romans says. 
But I want the world to hear us say, come. Come. That we're not just saying come to church because people could come to church and still go to hell. We're not just saying come be part of our group. We're saying come and we point to him. Say come to him. He's what you've been looking for. Come to him. This is everything. Come and drink. Come and eat. Come and be clothed. Come and be washed. As Paul said, all those bad people he just named, he puts out a very similar list at one point in his letters, and he goes, they were sexually immoral, they were, they were cheaters, they were idolaters, or all these things, and he said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. That was us. Someone said, come. Let's stand and pray.